listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. You could wonder why we go back to the writings of many years ago, such as St. Augustine, who lived some 1,600 years ago, or Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached in 1741, or to Charles Finney in the 1830s, or to the French woman of God, Jean Guyon, who lived in the late 1600s. These men and women had something to say which came out of their very life they lived. They were persecuted for their faith in Jesus and yet remained faithful to the one they laid down their lives for. Here's a quote from Robert Murray McShane of Scotland in the 1830s. Men return again and again to the few who have mastered the spiritual secret, whose life has been hid with Christ in God. These are, the, are of the old-time religion, hung to the nails of the cross. These believers he is referring to understood what it meant to be crucified with Christ and to have no life but in Christ alone. They had backbones of steel placed there by the Holy Spirit and his holy fire. Here is a short excitation from one of them named Oswald Chambers who wrote this a hundred years ago based on Isaiah 52:12. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Here's what he wrote. At the end of the year, we turn with eagerness to all that God has for the future, and yet anxiety is apt to arise from remembering the yesterdays. Our present enjoyment of God's grace is apt to be checked by the memory of yesterday's sins and blunders. But God is the God of our yesterdays, and he allows the memory of them in order to turn the past into a ministry of spiritual culture for the future. God reminds us of the past, lest we get into a shallow security in the present. For the Lord will go before you, This is a gracious revelation that God will garrison where we have failed to. He will watch lest things trip us up again like failure, as they assuredly will do if if he were not our rear guard. God's hand reaches back to the past and makes a clearinghouse for conscience. For you shall not go out with haste. As we go forth into the coming year, Let it not be in the haste of impetuous, unremembering delight, nor with the flight of impulsive thoughtlessness, but with the patient power of knowing that the God of Israel will go before us. Our yesterdays present irreparable things to us. It is true that we have lost opportunities which will never return. But God can transform this destructive anxiety into a constructive thoughtfulness for the future. Let the sleep, let the past sleep, but let it sleep on the bosom of Christ. Leave the irreparable past in his hands and step out into the irresistible future with him. The scripture for today, Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 14. 
At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will rebuild you, and you shall be built of O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor, together a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Then verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Thank you, Jack. Leave the irreparable past in his hands and step into his irresistible future. What a, what a great line from Chambers. Our God is a God of new beginnings, isn't he? Um, for our 10th wedding anniversary, my wife and I, we went, uh, well, my, my parents bought us a cruise with family life. 
and it was the Love Like You Mean It marriage cruise. So everybody on board is married, trying desperately hard to love each other like they mean it. All right, and, um, and man, we had a really great time. Like the, the food was awesome. It was February, so we left bitter cold, and we went into the sunniest, warmest, most beautiful places around the world. Uh, but one of the most impacting things on this cruise was the stories that we heard. Stories from people we got to sit down and have lunch with, but especially stories from the people that organized this event, um, because most of them had incredible stories that their marriage was crumbling, it was in a horrible spot, and God miraculously brought them out of that. You know, many of them had been through some sort of a, a, a huge event in their marriage, an affair, something like that, and their, their marriage was on the brink of divorce, and God had rescued them had brought them back to this place where now, years later, they were standing there giving this testimony of his faithfulness and keeping their covenant together. You know, one evening on the cruise, they put together this evening for couples, um, and it was called the Vow Renewal Evening, where if you wanted to, you could say your vows to one another again, and they would actually lead you through that. And lots of couples didn't participate, didn't feel the need to, but for some couples, especially those couples who had felt like um, their marriage had been over, this is a really powerful time for them. It was really, really meaningful for them to say promises to one another again because, and I'm guessing this is what the most powerful reason was, lots of those promises had been broken. Their vows hadn't been kept the first time around. And so now that they were trying for a fresh start, a new beginning, they were saying these promises to one another again. It was an opportunity for a new beginning. And our passage today from Jeremiah is a lot like this vow renewal ceremony. It's a vow renewal ceremony, but it's between God and his people, the Israelites. Remember that God had made covenants or promises, agreements with the people of Israel before. A covenant is just a strong, solemn, binding agreement between two parties. And God had done this with people like Abraham and David. And God was always faithful to his end of the agreement. He was always faithful to his end of the covenant. His people, not so much. That can actually sum up most of the Old Testament. We have a faithful God being faithful to an unfaithful people. That's, that's a pretty good summary of the Old Testament. Um, now, admittedly, our text here today in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 is incredibly positive and joyful and happy. It's a text of new beginnings with a God who specializes in new beginnings. That's the big idea today, but... Just like we saw with those couples on our marriage cruise, it wouldn't be telling the whole story if we just zoomed in on them at the vow renewal ceremony. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the full picture if we didn't see how low they had gotten. And likewise with our text today, you have to know the backstory in order to appreciate the joy and the beauty of that new beginning. So that's what we're going to do. We're definitely going to land in our text from Jeremiah 31 today, this happy place, we also need to go back into Jeremiah's book to really fully appreciate everything that God did here. And as we go through this text, we're actually going to be covering most of the book of Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bibles, be ready to flip um, because we're, going to, we're kind of going to do almost like an overview. But I want you to notice three big things about God in the text. All right, we're really looking at what do we understand about God from this text. The first thing is that God is a betrayed spouse. He tells us this. God is a betrayed spouse. Secondly, God is a just judge. And thirdly, God is an unthinkable forgiver granting new beginnings. All right, so here we go. But first, just a bit of background, uh, because I don't know about you, but I'm just, I always get the prophetic books confused. 
Um, I'm like, okay, which, which prophet was talking about that and what was their time frame? And I, 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 they just don't stand out in my mind like books in the New Testament do. Um, so the prophecy books, I have to go back and say, what was this prophet really aiming for? And Jeremiah, he, he was a reluctant prophet. He, he prophesied from about 627 to 585 B.C., right up through the time when Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, all right? And this is late in Israel's history. So if you, just for a reference point, King David became king in Israel, kind of the golden years of Israel, at about 1000 BC. So this is almost 500 years later. So Israel had been a nation, they'd been around for a long time, and they were now surrounded by growing powerful nations like Egypt and Babylon. And on top of that, they had forsaken the God that had gotten them this far. Like, it was a miracle that the tiny, little itsy-bitsy nation of Israel had survived this long. And the only reason it had survived is God fought their battles for them. Yahweh was their protector. Yahweh had insulated them from all the threats around them. And now, here they are, rebelling against him, worshiping other gods, becoming exactly like the pagan people around them. And for those reasons, God calls Jeremiah to go to them as a prophet to tell them to repent of their sin and to turn from their wickedness. And Jeremiah is the reluctant guy. He's, he doesn't really like his job, all right? And maybe you've been in that kind of a position before. Um, he's often known as the weeping prophet because he had a very unsuccessful job too. Um, he was called to call his people, the Israelites, back to God, to call them away from their sin and their wickedness. And all he got to see was they didn't believe him, they didn't turn, they wouldn't listen. So he, in a sense, got a front row seat to their, their disobedience, their rebellion, and eventually their destruction. So it was gut-wrenching for him to do this task that God called him to do. And we might be tempted to think, ah, oh, those crazy Israelites, you know, they, they can never get it right. They, what, they were just a, a huge mess. But we have to remember that their story is our story as well. We are no better than they are. We follow lots of the same patterns that they do. And in fact, the church is called the new Israel. We are the new Israel. And so this text is very much meant for us as well. And so let's get to these, big, these three big things that we learn about God from this text. And the first thing is stunningly that God portrays himself as a spouse who's been betrayed. And this is really crazy when you stop to think about this. Our God, the ruler and creator of the universe, he could picture himself any way that he wants to. When he paints a picture of himself, it's as a, I'm, I'm a spouse that's being cheated on. And that's, that's not just in Jeremiah, by the way. That's throughout the Old Testament we see this picture. But like he's involved himself with his people in such a way that he feels for us. He thinks about us. What we do, the actions that we have... They evoke emotion from him. We see this clearly in the early part of Jeremiah that the emotion that the people of Israel evoke in God's heart is all negative. It's, it's like he's a spouse that's being cheated on. Just look with me at the timeline of God's emotions here. In chapter 2, if you flip to chapter 2, verse 2, God says this, he's in the remembering phase, which I've done a fair amount of marriage counseling. Um, that's what I got my master's in. And and there's always these kinds of reflections in people whose marriage has really gone south. They're, they're thinking back like, yeah, I can remember when we did this and this. Like nobody gets married thinking, I bet this is going to go south really fast. Nobody gets married thinking that. They're all thinking back like, oh, I remember when we did this and we did this and it was all good. And what happened? And you can see God's asking these questions. God's thinking like this. Verse 2, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. 
How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So God's remembering fondly and even painfully the early days of his relationship with Israel as a young husband remembers the early days of his marriage. Thinking back like, oh yeah, things were so good. We were so in love. What went wrong? And that leads Yahweh to the next phase, which is questioning, verse 5. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And went after worthlessness and became worthless. In other words, what did I do to deserve this? Like, that's God asking this question. What did I do? How did, I, I'm confused. He, do, he doesn't know. What, what, how does this make sense? Just like you would hear a spouse at, who's been stepped out on. How does this make sense? How do I understand this? Of course, that leads to the ultimate feeling we find in this passage, which is betrayal. In verse 20... God says, yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Now, this is where we send out the little memo. This this is PG-13 here. But this is God's reference over and over throughout the Old Testament to his people, the Israelites. And what I find is interesting is that that image there, he says, on every high hill and under every green tree. What he's talking about there is these are the places on the high hills and under the trees where they would set up altars to worship other gods, right? But why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he say, on every high hill and under every green tree, there you worshipped other gods? And that's really frustrating to me. He doesn't say that. Instead, he uses this provocative sexual imagery. So what he's saying is, when you worship other gods, what that feels like to me is you're in bed with someone else. What that feels like to me is I'm a spouse who's being walked out on. I'm being cheated on. That's how God feels. That's how involved he's made himself with us. That's how given to us he really is. Now, in learning that about God's heart, there's also the flip side, right? There's also our role, and so this is kind of a brief side note about how God views us in this whole process, how God views his people. Look at his description. If you follow along in verse 23, it it gets even more graphic. He says, how can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. He goes on to say, You have said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So what's he saying here? What's with all the biological comparisons to animals? I mean, when's the last time you were compared to a, a camel or a donkey in heat? It's not very flattering, but that's the image that he uses for his people. And why again, why again the powerful sexual imagery? Well, what he's saying here is two things, I think. First of all, he's saying your desire to have other gods, your desire to worship other things is every bit as powerful as your strongest sexual craving. It is innate. It is instinctual for you to run after other gods, to put other gods in place of me. That's why the reformer John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We almost do it without even thinking, set up idols. And of course, we always think of idols, they must be these horrible, awful things. No, idols are most often good things. Your kids can be an idol, your career can be an idol, your money, your future, your spouse, everything can be an idol. Most often an idol is a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. That's what an idol is. And so God's saying, Do not underestimate the power of your heart to create idols, to put something else in place of me. It's every bit as strong 
as your strongest sexual craving. But secondly, what this means that God would compare us to animals in heat is that it means if you're not actively giving yourself to the arms of God, you're going to be giving yourself to the arms of something. You're going to be, that's what idolatry is, right? You're offering yourself on the altar to it. You're saying, here, have me, I'm yours. And again, this isn't necessarily just bad things, but it's all kinds of things saying like, you give my life meaning, you make me happy. Without you, my life does not have any purpose. It's not worth living. That's what an idol is. It's anything to which you look for the fundamental, your fundamental joy, happiness, hope, and meaning more than God. That's what the Israelites were doing, and that's what we do. And of course, all of Israel's unfaithfulness eventually leads God to this place of sort of resentment and anger. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. God says of Israel, she saw that, or God says of Judah, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. This is God speaking here. He says, I gave her a decree of divorce. Like God was ready to be done with Israel. He had had enough. He felt betrayed, rejected, confused. How would you feel about it? If you were married and your spouse just kept walking out on you after repeated attempts to forgive them and forgive them and forgive them and, and take them back, you would be like, okay, I'm done. I've had enough. That's what we see in God here. And I'm wondering, how does this, knowing this about God, see him writhing in pain over Israel's sin, how does this change your view of sin? See, because it would be one thing if God was just this distant deity, just powerful, and he says, you are my subjects, and you have disobeyed me, therefore I give you this. Therefore, this is your consequence. And just kind of distant and, and cold and clinical. But that's not what we see. That's not what we see at all. We see him in emotional turmoil. We see him a wreck. We see him vulnerable, baffled, jealous, and angry. All these things that you would see in a spouse who had been left for someone else. Very interesting that the ruler of the universe makes himself so vulnerable for puny little us. But that's what he does. Tim Keller says the powerful realization here is that sin doesn't just break God's law, it breaks his heart. And if you'll get that, it'll really change your life. It won't necessarily mean that you don't mess up anymore at all, but it'll really change how you go about it. Because most Christians, I find, they try, to, they try to get out of their sin struggles just by scolding themselves. And if you know anything about psychology, you know most of the time that just makes the problem worse. You just tell yourself, whatever you do, don't do that. And now what's the thing that you can't stop thinking about? You know, it's kind of the principle of the red button. You ever tell your kids, whatever you do, don't push that button. And then you just see them over there going, oh man. They just can't contain themselves. You know, they, they get closer and closer to it because you just told them what not to do and now they want to do it even more. So instead of scolding yourself, try this. Try saying, look, when I do that thing, it crushes the one that I love. It crushes the one that I love. The one who has loved me so infinitely, it breaks his heart. And now, then you'll be on the, on the track to starting to get free from it. That's the first thing we learn in this book, is that God feels like a betrayed spouse. Secondly, we learn that God is a just judge. And many modern people, especially in the West, have a really hard time with this aspect of God's character. You know, we want God to be kind and gentle and loving, and we want to sidestep his, his wrath, we want to sidestep his righteous anger at sin. And I think it's important for us to recognize this cultural pull on us, because it is there, 
but also because the cultural pull on us will change through different seasons. Even this particular aspect, like modern Christians in the U.S. have a much harder time with God's justice and righteous anger than even 70 years ago following World War II and, and the Holocaust. Many Christians in the U.S. felt like it was a great thing for there to be a holy, just God who punishes sin. They felt like that was a huge strength of the Christian faith because they had just witnessed the Nazis exterminate six million Jews. There had better be a righteous God who puts everything right. How can we stand to live in this world if there's no God that, that does anything to, to make things right in the end? Miroslav Volf, who's the well-known uh, Croatian theologian, he actually lived through civil war in his home country of Yugoslavia, and he believes that a commitment to nonviolence as Christians must be premised on God's vengeance. It actually, on a God who is just. He's like, it, it's absolutely essential that we have a God who's just, who punishes wickedness. Otherwise, we, we can't have a commitment to nonviolence as Christians. Listen to what he says. He's brilliant, so it's hard for me to sometimes follow him, but he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. And he's right. It's unpopular, but listen. He goes on, he says, to the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is, perf is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. So Wolf is saying, look, Christians are called to nonviolence. The only way we can hold to a nonviolent life is the belief that we have a perfect, righteous, just judge who puts everything right in the end. That's the only way we pick up the sword. Wolf is saying, if you don't believe that, you just haven't, you just haven't really been sinned against. That's all. You don't know what it's like to suffer like I do. That's what he's saying. So he's saying we need this doctrine of the justice of God, that he is perfect and righteous. And that truth is cover to cover in the Bible. That God is a righteous and perfectly just judge. And he not only judges his own people in the book of Jeremiah, but he judges all the nations around them as well, including Babylon, who he raises up to oppress Israel in their disobedience. He judges Babylon too in the end. But the focal point lies on Israel, however. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. God says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet throughout the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion. Flee for safety. Stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Babylon was to the north. He's saying this is coming. After repeated calls for repentance, God finally brings destruction upon his people. There were actually three raids on the land. The first one took place in 605 BC. That's when people like Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak and Benny, according to the Veggie Tales, that's when they were taken to Babylon. All right. Then there was another one in 597 BC. People like Ezekiel were carried off to Babylon. And the third and final one was in 586 BC when Jerusalem was entirely destroyed. So you want to talk about not learning from your mistakes. Israel just came, kept on going, pedal to the metal, you know, just living however they wanted to live. After three chances, three times where God sent 
you know, captors in to say, I'm going to give you over to them if you don't listen. In his perfect justice, God really punished Israel. He really raised up Babylon to overtake them. They burned their cities, took all their people captive. And in chapter 5, verse 18 of this book, we see his explanation to Jeremiah. He says, even in those days, declared the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. So God's grace is already starting to break through. And he says, when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in the land that's not yours. So he's basically saying, look, they have to serve the Babylonians just like they serve the Babylonian gods. I mean, just like we learned in the Judges series, God just gives them over to what they're doing. He says, look, you want foreign gods? You get to have their people too. Let's see how they treat you. Let's see how you like that. And it doesn't go well for them. It's not pretty. I think it's important for us to realize here that God was perfectly just in his actions towards his people because they had become wicked through and through. Not only were they worshiping other gods, but they had adopted all the practices that went along with worshiping other gods, which is really normal, right? When we start worshiping anything else other than God, we start barreling down the path of wickedness in our lives. All of us do this. It always leads to wickedness. What were some of the complaints that God gives about his people? Well, look at chapter 6. He repeatedly tells, he talks about this throughout the book, that everyone is greedy for unjust gain. God says that, like, everyone's greedy for unjust gain. He says, everyone from prophet to priest deals falsely. So just think about that. Your pastors, your leaders, everybody, they're all out to get things for themselves. They're all out looking out for number one. That was the condition in Israel. Everybody's just trying to look out for number one. Jenny and I watched this documentary recently on greed and its powerful impact around the globe. Just this, this, this longing for more, just, just more and more and more. And it was interesting because the producer of this documentary, not a Christian, but she concluded that greed was literally attached to almost every major problem around the world. Like the pornification of our culture, all linked back to greed. Um, sex trafficking, of course, linked to greed. But fatherlessness, all these things, on and on and on she went. Like, identifying like this all comes back to greed. God's sort of saying that. There's really nothing new under the sun here. Additionally, God says that the Israelites, they oppressed the poor, the immigrant, and the fatherless, the widow. They shed innocent blood, even offered their children as sacrifices to idols. These are God's people, offering their children as burnt offerings. They become sexually immoral, committing adultery, and were stealing from one another. And all of these things we still see in our land today as a result of worshiping other gods. You know, of course, we don't have little statues, most of us, of gold or silver or wood or stone. But we have plenty of idols still, right? We already mentioned that we worship money and possessions, and that means we oppress the poor and the immigrant because we're looking out for number one, right? So that might mean unjust business practices, um, dishonest business practices, because the bottom line is the only thing that matters. Whatever I do, if it increases my profitability, great. I don't care what, who I have to crawl over to get to it, whose back I have to climb up. It doesn't matter who gets trampled underfoot as long as I get more. We worship sex, so we believe the only way to be a full person is to express every sexual desire that you have. So our sexual identity has become our primary, in some cases, our only identity. We worship comfort, of course, and convenience, so we take the life of the unborn, and we refuse to care for the orphan and the widow. We, we're not going to inconvenience ourselves. 
Brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun here. Idolatry is at the root of all of our sin. Putting other things in place of God always leads to this kind of thing, and it breaks the heart of our God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Dave, wasn't the passage today really... I'm trying to remember the passage that Jack read. Wasn't that really positive and encouraging and uplifting? And haven't you done a great job of making this a real downer so far? And I know, I, I know, the first two points are real downers. But you have, to, you have to get that in order to appreciate chapter 31. You have to see how dark it got for Israel in order to appreciate. You have to see how dark it got for those couples on our marriage cruise in order to appreciate the beauty and the power of that, of that covenant renewal ceremony. Our passage today could easily become just a refrigerator magnet passage. You know, it's just plucked out of there, and it's just, it's just a sweet little passage if you don't understand all the background. It's actually way better than a refrigerator magnet passage. It's way better than something you put on a graduation cake. It actually says, even in our unthinkable disobedience and rebellion, our God comes to us in the midst of that with good news. And the good news is that he's an unthinkable forgiver granting new beginnings. He's an unthinkable forgiver granting new beginnings. At long last, we're back at the happy place in the story. We're at the vow renewal ceremony. And look, in verses 1 through 14, we see so many stunning things. We don't have time to cover them all today, but I'm going to cover um, seven big ones. In chapters 30 through 33, I would encourage you to read this. This is called the book of comfort in the midst of Jeremiah. Right? So we're in the book of comfort where God says, all these things, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to punish you. And indeed he does for their wickedness. But then he gives them this hope. He gives them this comfort in the midst of it. He's like, I'm not going to leave you. This isn't going to be the final chapter in your story. And look at these things. Look at the comfort of what God promises here. First, God is renewing his covenant promises. He's saying vows to them again, just like the husband in that vow renewal ceremony. He's beaming from ear to ear, promising Um, the same things to them. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, verse 3. I have continued my faithfulness to you. I'm going to make, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He's renewing his vows to Israel. But secondly, he says Israel's going to be rebuilt. You know, Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Israel's cities burned. And God's saying there's going to be rebuilding of all that's broken. I'm going to give you a fresh start. I'm going to give you a new beginning. Thirdly, Israel's going to get a new identity. In verse 4, he calls them, O virgin Israel. Now, what a stark contrast to the the language that we saw in chapter 2 and 3, right? He didn't feel so good about that, but now he says, no, I'm going to call you, O virgin Israel. You're going to be pure and spotless. He he says um, later on in in, uh, verse 8, I believe, he's going to be a father to them, verse 9. He's going to be a father to them again. They're going to be like his firstborn, Ephraim. Fourthly, God's going to bring his people home. And our longing for home so thick throughout the Old Testament. And God's people certainly felt that longing as they were living in exile in Babylon. And he's saying, look, I'm going to bring you back. And I love that when he's going to bring them back, it's going to be a diverse group of people. Look at this. They're going to walk by a brook of water in a straight path. They're not going to wander through the wilderness like they did when they came out of Egypt. But then he's, he says, who's he going to bring back? Among them, the blind, the lame, the pregnant woman, she who's in labor, are those not the most vulnerable people in society? And they're all coming back in this company with Israel, and this time Israel's going to do what's right by them. This time Israel's not going to oppress them. They're going to take care of these people because that's what God wants them to do. He wants to them to look out for the, the weak among them and to be that kind of a people, not to oppress them, but to look out for them and care for them. That's always been the heart of our God. 
Then number five, there's going to be a new prosperity for the people. Look, the wine and the grain and the oil, verse 12, they're going to be a well-watered garden. They will languish no more. The young of the flock, all these signs, God say, I'm going to provide plenty for you. You're going to be this oasis in the midst of a desert. You're going to be this, this plentiful group having all that you need and more. And then verse 6, I love this, there's going to be much rejoicing. So there's feasting, and there's dancing, and there's singing, and there's music. This is the heart of our God. This is what he actually wants for his people. You know, I think a lot of times we can look at passages like this and think, oh, he's just, he's just this angry deity waiting with a stick to beat us. No, he disciplines us in our sin because our sin actually destroys our ability to actually be happy. He disciplines us in that because he's like, no, that's going to destroy you. That's going to take you away from my created purpose for you. He actually, what he actually envisions for us is incredible joy. C.S. Lewis says this about God. He said, he's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. This is the heart of God for his people, feasting and rejoicing and dancing and singing in his new kingdom. And then, seventh and finally, best of all, God's going to make a new covenant with them to replace the old one. Jack read it, it's verse 31 through 34 of our chapter. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, the one they broke. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel, I will put my laws within them, and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, and they're going to be my people. They're going to know me. That's what he's saying there. So he's giving them a fresh start. He's giving them this brand new beginning. But it's not a fresh start in saying like, all right, you messed it up that time. Now try harder this time not to mess it up. God already knows that didn't work. He's saying, no, I'm going to give them a fresh start and I'm going to make a brand new covenant. And then Jesus comes along in Luke chapter 20, 22, and he, he references Jeremiah 31 and he says, this is the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. It's sealed in my blood. It's cut in my blood. What's he saying there? Well, Jesus is saying, look, the old covenant, it didn't work because it was predicated on, hey, God's going to be a faithful God and you just be a faithful people. Simple, right? It works. No, it doesn't because they weren't able to be faithful. They were not, they were so sinful, they couldn't be obedient enough. And so Jesus is saying, this is going to be a new covenant where I uphold my end of the agreement and I uphold your end of the agreement. I will be the faithfulness that you could never be. I will give you the righteousness that you could never achieve. I'll do it. It's going to be a new covenant in my blood. Jesus knew that his blood would be spilled to cover over us, to give us that righteousness, to make us that people that we were called to be. He would die, rise again from the dead on the third day, conquering the power of Satan's sin and death for us. Then he would rise again, then he would ascend to heaven and he would send for us the Holy Spirit, just like God promised here, to write the law in our hearts. So now we know the law, we also have the power to obey it. And friends, if this isn't good news to you this morning, I just don't know what is. I don't know how good news could get any better than this. Like, God's giving you a fresh start, a new beginning, no matter where you're at. He's saying, I'll wipe the slate clean. I'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. And not only that, but I'll do it. I'm not going to demand perfection out of you the second time around because you can't do it. I already know. So I'll give you the perfection that I demand. I'll achieve it for you through my son, Jesus. 
If you're here today and you've never received that forgiveness in Jesus today, we would just love to pray with you. We'd love to get you started on that journey with him, following him. Not, not in an effort to earn something because Jesus has already paid everything for you, but just out of love, out of response to this God who's given you this new beginning. We want today, the first Sunday of the year, to be that new beginning for you. For those of you who are Christians in here today, maybe you've had a terrible year. Maybe this last year, 2021, uh, as hard as it is to imagine, was worse than 2020. You know, maybe it was just really, really hard for so many reasons. Or maybe you backslid into some sort of sin struggle. God wants you to hear today, I have a new beginning for you. You don't have to be stuck in this place. You can be free. And so come up here and get prayed for. Don't wait. Don't wait. He offers it. He says, yes, I am the God of new beginnings. And that's who we're running to today as we start the year. Our God who grants us new beginnings. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God of new beginnings because we're, we're a people with lots of failings. We're a people that over and over again, like the Israelites, we, we run from you. We run to other things. We put other things in place of you. And so help us, Lord. Would you give us the power in the Holy Spirit today to live as the people you've called us to, li to live as? Would you give us a clear insight to see, Jesus, just what you've done for us, earning our righteousness for us, making us clean, a clean that we could have never been on our own, and that we would live out of gratitude for all that you've done. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.